This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Fascinating and important topic ever covered on the show. Insurance! So get your claims forms out, get your fountain pen dipped in ink, and buckle in to the most deductible time you can have on the internet. This is a podcast of rare antiquities, and tonight I will be your claims adjuster, Jeff. And you all can hail to the king, baby. This is Harry. Today we are going back to the 1944 film noir classic Double Indemnity. Harry, how you doing, man? I'm good, baby. How are you doing? <laughs> good. Just glad we could finally get this one going here. We've been meaning to do this one for a few weeks now, so good to be back on, on the show. Yes, it's getting near Christmas too, so near end of November, so just managing to squeeze in a couple of episodes here or there is a little tight, but hey, that's what we do. That's right. We take one for the team so that our loyal listeners can hear the topical film reviews from 1944 so it's really important to get these in tight so let's say uh, let's go back a ways here now obviously this movie's before our time have you ever seen this before any knowledge uh, or uh, impressions of double indemnity before you watch it for the episode today no no never heard of it the only thing i know about 1944 that's the year my <laughs> i mean aside from all the world war stuff is that my dad was born in 44 so that that's how far back it goes that's definitely going back a ways for sure yeah, during the film during World War II, or as you like to say, that World War stuff, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good, you know, high time for the genre film noir. I had never seen this either before the show. The only thing I knew about the movie was one of my mom's favorite films, actually. So, Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, that's how it popped onto my radar. And once I researched it, obviously, I'm you know, familiar with the director, lots of the players involved here, but never saw it or knew anything about it so nice to be surprised yes no i'm aware of billy wilder the director i haven't seen a lot of his work but yeah when his name came up i was like oh okay interesting mm -hmm. but i i remember last time you had mentioned a correct me if i'm wrong you'd said something that this was on one of your lists yep. like film film noir lists that's right yeah uh, okay well let's jump into the film here okay and then we'll circle back around to some trivia so in the hot, dark Los Angeles night, wounded insurance salesman Walter Neff grabs that piece of indelible technology, the dictaphone, and records a confession for his friend, the claims adjuster Barton Keyes. Flashback! Neff, while on a routine house call at a client's residence to get a car insurance policy renewed, instead meets the lady of the house, Mrs. Phyllis Dietrichson. More sparks fly than at a blacksmith convention, and upon a second clandestine meeting set up by the enterprising Mrs. Dietrichson, she inquires about taking on an anonymous accident policy on her husband, just in case, so, I don't know, like an anvil or a piano were to fall on him? <laughs> well, that smells fishier than yesterday's clam sandwich to Walter Neff, and he's having none of it. See, you can't get away with it. It's impossible. There's a claims adjuster down at the office, Barton Keys, and he can smell a tulip under a pile of horse shit. He's so good he can spot the fleas on a dog's back from 50 yards away, he's, well, he's really good. He'd be onto them faster than a fly on fruitcake, and then they're both up the creek. So Walter bottles up his boner and he's out of there. But he just can't shake Phyllis Dietrichson from his mind. There's something about her. Something dark and seductive. Oh, and wouldn't you know, here she is at Walter's apartment. And she explains that it's not at all what he thinks. 
She's miserable living with her husband and his daughter. He'll get drunk and slap her face. Never lets her go anywhere. And just, it gets mad because she uses up all the Wi-Fi data, that kind of thing. But she never wanted him dead. Maybe fantasized about it a couple of times, but murder was never on her mind. An accident. Well, now that's something totally different. Again, Walter stops her in her tracks. No way. No how. You can't cheat the insurance guys. They've seen it all. But Walter can't help himself. After all those years of seeing bogus claims, you start to think yourself how you could do it. If only to get into the minds of those criminals to sniff one out. But with all of that knowledge, all of that insider information, maybe, just maybe you could get away with it. Walter just can't stand knowing Phyllis would be going back to that miserable marriage. So he relents. The perfect plan is put into motion. They arrange to get his signature on the insurance papers to make it look like he took the policy out on himself. And since killing him is not enough, they arrange to make it look like an unlikely accident to trigger the policy's double indemnity clause to multiply the payout. Phyllis will get out of her shitty marriage. The drunken douche will get a long walk off a short pier. Walter will get in with the woman of his dreams, and they'll walk away with a cool $100,000. All it will take is the cold-blooded murder of another human being. With the plan in motion, Mr. Dietrichson climbs into the car with his wife with the intention of going to the train station. But they take a little detour. Into hell. Walter's been hiding in the back seat. When the moment is right, Walter does something anyway that results in Mr. Dietrichson's death. Walter jumps on the train, posing as the deceased husband, then jumps off the observation deck of the caboose, where Phyllis is waiting to help deposit the body on the tracks. Perfect plan. Slicker than silk on a banana peel. Even the investigation seems to go their way. At first, the insurance guys think this is a suicide, which would mean no payout, but at least no one's going to jail. But even Barton Keyes doesn't buy that. What are the odds someone tries to commit suicide by jumping off the back of a slow-moving train? Gotta be an accident. But other gears start turning in the machine. Mr. Dietrichson's daughter, Lola, suspects foul play. See, Phyllis was Lola's mother's nurse. And that first Mrs. Dietrichson also passed away under suspicious circumstances. And also, that stepmommy has been seeing her own boyfriend, Nino, behind Lola's back. Maybe the two of them were in on it together. Oh boy, now we have a tangled web. But with the insurance agency closing in, Walter sees this as a way out. He's going to blow this whole thing up like a Mentos tossed in a bottle of Diet Coke. He heads to Phyllis's house one last time and tells her he is going to kill her and frame poor, stupid Nino for the murder. The cops in the insurance agency will think it was Nino and Phyllis who concocted the whole scheme, and he'll get off scot-free. But Phyllis is ready with a handy little revolver and caps Walter in the shoulder. But being the manly 1940s noir brute that he is, he merely shrugs off that flesh wound and takes the gun from Phyllis, shooting her twice, killing her. Coming back around full circle, Walter Neff is sitting in Keyes' office, confessing into the dictaphone. When Keyes arrives to hear the whole story, a weakened Walter muses that he'll be on his way to Mexico, but it's far too late for that. He slumps to the floor and smokes one last cigarette as a free man. The end. All right, well, that's double indemnity, Harry. First impressions. Well, I mean, clever write-up. So that, I was just going to say, that's what that fucking thing was. A dictaphone? Yeah, a dictaphone. What kind of cartridge does he put in there? It's like he's loading a fucking cannon. Like, a, it's a fifty cal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. It weighed more than 50 cals, I'm pretty sure. I was pretty impressed. I was saying, what the hell is that? Yeah. You answered that question. Dictaphone. That was one thing I was going to ask you. And then I guess I have another question is like, so, you know, there's always truth into someone's writing. So do you struggle with Wi-Fi data? (laughs) (laughs) I did until I recently upgraded my internet plan. So I'm laughing. I'm sitting pretty now. Laughing all the way to the bank, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. No, no. It's good write-up. Chuckled a few times. But yeah, I mean, on paper, it's a pretty straightforward, simple little thriller slash noir story that we're seeing here. I guess the first 
impression that I would get is just as what she used to say or what Walter said to Phyllis originally and that she kept repeating straight and narrow or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't recall the exact wording, but I think that's from your synopsis. That's kind of how I would best describe this film on paper. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot of twists and turns. They're a little bit more subtle, but we'll get it in a second here. Let's go down the trivia road here. As you mentioned, this was directed by Billy Wilder and co-written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler based on the novella by James M. Kane, who wrote some hard-boiled American detective fiction. I mean, Billy Wilder, one of the kings of Hollywood, very accomplished writer, producer, director. This is our second visit to his work here. Our previous episode, we did Sunset Boulevard, also a Billy Wilder joint. Co-written by Raymond Chandler, he's mostly known as a crime novelist. Another tie-in to him is he wrote the novel The Long Goodbye, which was made into a film that we also did on a previous episode. So a couple of fallbacks there. This film was made uh, on a budget of just under a million dollars, which would be fairly typical for the time in the mid-40s. And uh, it grossed $5.72 million at the domestic box office. So it certainly was, I guess you would say that's a pretty good turnout there. That's a hit. Oh, yeah, that would be a hit. There's no triple marketing costs that you would have now and what is it 50 million dollar reshoots that they would probably be going through it's like you know it's like you film it once it's in the can we're done baby we're digitally removing fred mcmurray's mustache (laughs) if he had one in which as we were talking about justice league before we went on the show here just as a neat aside i'd never heard of somebody's facial hair having to be uh, digitally erased for reshoots before but hey it makes for fun story so (laughs) no but the simpsons made fun of george lucas because he was there was like one instance where they said, you know, he accomplished putting like an, you know, an eyelash on Jar Jar Binks. And, <laughs> and that to him was gold, baby. George certainly known as perpetual tinkerer and perfectionist. So it did some interesting things. So, yeah, so that's not a whole lot in the trivia department. You know, sometimes these old movies don't have a whole lot of intrigue going on behind the scenes. Again, you know, we've got Fred McMurray as Walter Neff. His acting credits go way, way back to the 20s and 30s. Yeah, because I've never heard of him before or seen him in anything. So yeah, he's, I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff, again, going back to the 30s. So his work is generally, it's kind of been regarded as underappreciated, underrated. So he's not very well known, even though he did kind of get credit for playing against type all the time. But yeah, not a whole lot. Name recognition for Fred there. Barbara Stanwyck, on the other hand, very well known. And she was in about a million old movies. Uh, also going back to the early 30s. <laughs> Yeah, see, she seemed more recognizable yeah. to me, but I, I can't, obviously I wouldn't be able to place her. I haven't seen that many films from this time, but is there any famous work that she's been in? Any, well, any movies? Yeah, I mean, sort of settled into TV roles, you know, sort of going through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So like, she was on a bunch of stuff. She was on The Untouchables, Wagon Train, Charlie's Angels, Dynasty, you know, among lots of other things. As far as going back to her film career, anything notable, I mean, I guess it depends on how much of a buff of old movies you are, which, you know, neither of us really are. So nothing that I was particularly familiar with. So even though the name sort of strikes out to me, I'm sure I must have seen her in a TV show here or there. But she worked right up until the mid 80s as a character from Dynasty. So that might be from where I recognize her from, because for some reason I watched all these uh, evening soaps. I don't know why as a kid. And yeah, she... You, you did? You, you watched Dynasty? And my dad watched... So surprisingly, my dad watched Dynasty. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I did watch why. Dynasty because it was on. Oh. 
We didn't have cable, so if it was on, we watched it. If there wasn't a hockey game on, it was just what was on, and Dynasty was a thing back then. So that's just the trivia there. So we can kind of go into the scene by scene. Any other initial thoughts before we jump in here? No, let's. I'm sure things will pop up as we go through. So why don't we just get right into it? Yeah. So we open up on you know where film noir movies uh, sort of like to open in medias res, as they say, where shit's going on. Clearly, we've got. Walter Neff, who's introduced to us here in some notable discomfort, and he whips out the dictaphone and he confesses to a murder sort of right off of the bat. You can tell he's talking to his friend who had some suspicions and he's confirming all of those, except who the killer was. You picked, you know, he said you picked the wrong guy and you want to know who it was. It was me. And that's where we start. So I know it's quick here, but let's just reflect on the opening scene. Again, similar opening in a sense to sunset boulevard yeah i was just gonna say the opening with the car yeah and actually i wanted to actually talk about the i thought it was interesting how in the credits when it opens you have the guy hobbling on the cane Mm -hmm. and i love that shot against the uh, the sunset or whatever it is and then you have the car speeding down the street and it's him and he's a little out of control this to me felt like more of a trope but i mean it's understandable because he is injured yeah and that that kind of feeling was just you know, I don't know if the, how many film noir movies from the time opened in a very similar fashion. It just felt something of a staple of the time mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, it certainly so feels like stuff. a staple now, doesn't it? And, you know, without knowing the full history of where some of this stuff came from, it's hard to it's hard to say because. Yeah, it's difficult. First. Yeah, but it's fair to say probably that this would have been an influential film in the genre, just given the talent involved, Billy Wilder. And the time, it's very likely that this would have been an early example of some of those things that we take for granted, such as the whole story told in flashbacks. So we get, and the voiceover, obviously, mm-hmm. which is another given for the genre. But I did like how he started with the original scene, and you mentioned it, where he's talking, he's dictating a message of what happened. And I liked how he said to his friend Keys or his coworker, you got the wrong man. And I, I love that. I, I liked that opening. I liked when he said that, that grips you mm-hmm. right away. Yeah, it does a really good job of bringing you in here. And they all are also able to use the dictaphone as an excuse for a voiceover, which I guess you don't really need, but it helps to put the film into some context or put the fact that somebody's talking to you over the whole thing into context. So we open the flashback as he heads over is he is just doing some rounds and ends up at the home of Mr. and Mr. Dietrichson in order to renew a car insurance policy and right off the bat we get a little bit of banter between these two which i thought was some good lines there the one line between him and the housekeeper i thought was pretty good where she says yes where the living room would be and she says in there but to keep the liquor locked up and he's like it's all right i always carry my own keys i thought that was a mm. little line that and they have their obviously their sexual double entendres going in full force right off the bat which i thought was also pretty good i thought they had instant chemistry right away which you want from your femme fatale and your noir protagonist so what's your opinion on our two leads we meet them both right away they get into the banter right away so we have a pretty good idea of what's to come from their relationship what was what are your thoughts initially a bit mixed start i was intrigued with more with phyllis than i was with walter especially at the beginning when they first meet i mean i just really i don't know if you want to just bat this out of the way right now i just <laughs> he immediately i was just chuckling he was immediately calling her baby and it was yeah. these short little quips 
you know, like, give me some sugar, baby, <laughs> you know, hail, hail to the king, baby. This guy was, did Ash take it from this guy? Is this like the army of darkness get its script from this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they certainly laid on pretty like even, there. Yeah, sign yeah of the time, well, it's not even that. Weird. Like, even later, he goes, shut up, baby. And he kisses her. <laughs> <laughs> We're I was watching this women with... were objects. Good old days. Good old Yikes. days. No, but I mean, I guess just, I just wanted to ask you, were you... I wouldn't be, say surprised because this is something you would definitely see during this kind of time frame. But what are your thoughts on, on the dialogue, especially coming from him and these quips throughout the film? Well, yeah, I guess there's, we can, yeah, we can dig that. We can dig into that right away here. What the hell? Just on the surface, I wasn't surprised because it is normal for the genre to have this type of banter between the woman and the dude. And I thought it was executed fairly well. It's overwritten a little bit because it's a little too zippy, especially between two people who just met each other. But again, that's sort of a trope of the genre. And you take it. I was fine with it, just putting myself into the position of, you know, it's 1944. This is the type of movie I'm watching, so I'm okay with it. Now, as it kind of progresses, though, I also try to watch with a modern eye because it's sort of a neat historical experiment to, to see what the views were at the time on whether it's race, religion you know, gender equality. And it's just neat to have those conversations, I think. So, you know, on the one hand, she's a pretty well-realized character. She's not one note and she's obviously very intelligent. And when she speaks, when she's able to sort of hit the tennis ball back and forth with this guy, it's that, that, you know, that shows her intelligence. And so I think that's, on the one hand, that could be empowering from a feminist perspective, but she's also still kind of made out to be the I guess we've got to get into it later, but as in all noir films, it's always the woman who's the downfall of of the man. So that, again, puts another layer uh, on top of it just from a historical perspective. So, so it's kind of neat to listen to them in this in this context. I don't write movies like this anymore. And uh, you can't write a movie like no. this anymore anyway. No, you could. No, it'd be impossible. So. No, I liked – so just I'll just go back to the beginning scenes. I mean, I'll just say this. I mean, right away – I don't think they had instant chemistry. I mean, I think the chemistry developed. I was more convinced of their chemistry a little later as the movie went on. But clearly, right off the bat, as you had mentioned in your synopsis, he's got the hots for her. I'm surprised, you know, he wasn't showing his boner through the whole scene here because he's laying it on pretty thick with his looks and how aggressive he was. Like, he, he was really coming on to her. But you could already... I mean, I... Was it right away in the beginning scene that she was asking about the insurance now? I can't recall. Like, or was it later? Like, because he had to come back because he was originally just asking for her husband. Yeah, she does. Scene. She does ask, in fact. So he's like, they're going back and forth with some insurance banter, talking about the automobile club and, and whatnot. She asks if he handled all kinds of insurance. And he lists everything off, like fire, earthquakes, so forth. And she inquires about accident insurance. Mm, so and, right away, you know, yep. like it's telegraphing immediately right away. And yeah. I'll let you go into some more scenes. I'll bring it full circle. Yeah, but well, that's just what I have to say. Sure, it yeah. telegraphed did, it right away. She does ask right away. And so that thought's been planted and run right after that. Right after he says, yeah, I, I you know, I can do that. She says, well, why don't you come by tomorrow night? Then around 8.30, my husband will be in and we can get this taken care of. So it's almost like she's sending him away so she can start to plot almost right away. Mm, yes. Um, and then one of my favorite lines after that was she says, my husband will be home. You're anxious to talk to him. And he's like, yeah, but I was getting over the idea. 
And she says to him, there's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff, 45 miles an hour. And he says, how fast was I going, officer? She says, around 90. So I thought that was pretty good. That was clever, clever dialogue. Yeah. I mean, again, like we were saying, part of the whole bit with this type of movie, but I thought that was fun. So they make the date, I suppose, for him to come around tomorrow night at 830 to get the husband to sign off on everything. And he ends up taking off there. He heads back to his insurance office. And we get some scenes there of uh, insurance office life and his buddy, what's that guy's name? Keys? Keys, yeah. So his friend Keys is taking apart this poor redneck sap for burning out his own truck and trying to make a false claim on it. I didn't like these scenes. Well, I'll tell you why. All right. Like, I like the fact that it portrays Keys as smart because he has, because that's part of the plot. Like, you can't fool him. That's why their plan has to be perfect and he's unfoiled at the end. You know, in the end, he really doesn't fool Keys. But so that's why they're showing this. Like, Keys is uncovering somebody who's trying to get away with insurance fraud. But you have to admit, set up the guy who was playing the other bloke, whoever he was, you know, this dumbass farmer guy or whatever he is. And the dialogue and the way the scene played out with him discovering everything in front of Walter, I didn't buy it. I thought it was bad writing, bad performances. I mean, I liked Keys. But I didn't like these scenes. I, I'm glad it was there to show he's a smart and it's needed. I just wasn't convinced of it from an acting and a writing perspective. Yeah, I think it was a little bit over the top, especially from the, you know, the redneck guy. I, I didn't have a problem with Keys. I thought he, he played it fine. But yeah, some of the lines didn't really do it for me. Like when he's telling the guy how to open the door. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, like at first it was kind of funny. I'm like, all right. It's enough. Yeah, it's enough. Exactly. So it didn't quite hit. Their conversation after that, I guess, was just more of the same. Like, we're, we are just trying to get the impression that Keys is very experienced. He knows what he's doing, and he can smell a rat from a mile away. So, I guess it does the job of that. But, but then, doesn't it go on about how he's trying to convince Walter? It, maybe it's the scene, or it's another scene pretty quickly after this, where he's trying to convince Walter to get promoted instead of being a door-to-door guy? Yeah. And I didn't really think we needed these scenes. No. It felt very filler. It had nothing to do with anything. Yeah, it did feel like some filler. It didn't have much to do with anything. I, I didn't really need to know more about the office goings on here. The fact that I, I was fine that they were friends just because they kind of told me that they were friends. I didn't need to see any scenes of dialogue here. Maybe just to fill out the fact that this is a place where they work and give us some context for that, I suppose. But no, I, I agree with you. I don't think it added too much there. It added nothing. Uh, it added nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he gets a phone message from Mrs. Dietrichson, and she changes the date instead of coming by tomorrow evening when her husband's there. He's supposed to roll around Thursday afternoon instead. So he rolls down to the house, and he keeps, you know, he's thinking about Phyllis the whole time, specifically the anklet on her leg. And he goes in, and there's some more banter here, which is fine. Uh, I thought, you know, sort of more of the same. It's Really just sort of an extension of the previous scene. Uh, the husband's not here. And this is where, you know, we get a little bit more talk about the accident insurance policies. So some of the details. What? Well, this is where he reveals himself to her that he knows what she's doing. Essentially. Yeah, is it not like he calls her out on it? Like, and he wants to walk away. He says, well, I can't do it. It's impossible to do. I know what you're doing. Who do you think I am? And... This is the scene, correct? That is more the scene. In the previous scene, he did, he had like one line where he's like, where he had sort of called her up, but nothing too overt. But yeah, this is it here. So she's, you know, he's asking, 
sorry, she's asking, you know, what could happen? What's the benefit? He's saying, well, $125 a week cash benefit and a $50,000 capital sum in case it gets killed. And that's when, you know, the lights kind of come on around that. So I want to ask you something. Yeah. So he is obviously he's attracted to her from right. his first their first meetup. But now it's the anklet that really kind of makes him swoon and kind of you can't let that go. Because I remember like afterwards, like he's constantly thinking about her and stuff like that. And I think the anklet comes around near the end of the movie again, too. Does it not? It does, I think. Yes. So like this guy has an anklet fetish. He's not into her. He's into the anklet. The anklet does stick in his mind. I think there's a couple things going on there one it's not quite so obvious a detail to be fixated on i mean he could have been swooning over her face her breasts i mean any number of obvious things and but it's the 40s i mean you can't you're not going to be zooming in on the breasts exactly it's also the 40s so i think they're doing two things there one they're giving him a like it's just a little bit more interesting of a detail that you can talk about two it's the 40s and you can't be focusing on anybody's sensitive bits and three, the anklet, I think is it's has an element of eroticism to it because it's also on bare skin that he can see. So it's I think those are all factors in that particular detail. I mean, it ends up not really being relevant, but, you know. No, I just found it curious. Like, it just seemed like that was the one thing he focused on. And then after that, he just couldn't get her out of her mind. And it felt like that it really started with the anklet. Yeah, he kept going back to it. He definitely. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't like rouse any erotic thoughts for me, but you know, hey, far be it from me to hold another man's sexual preferences, you know, <laughs> to sh- so if that's what works for the poor bastard, then hey, good for him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he calls her out. He's not having any of this talk. She doesn't come right out and say anything. It's more the fact that she sort of wants to take out this policy anonymously without him knowing about it. That really throw the alarm bells, ring the alarm bells for Walter here. But he gets out of there and, you know, heads back. Oh, yeah, we get the scenes where he's, he doesn't want to go back to the office. He goes by bowling alley, which is awesome. Like in the middle of the workday, oh, I'm just going to go bowl a few, roll a few lines. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was saying like, man, these guys had it made. And I know that was the greatest generation, but this guy was not like part of that. This guy no, was yeah, exactly. Like... <laughs> he didn't fight in the war. He's not part of the greatest anything. No, he's just like, well, I'll just go bowling. Uh, and I visited a client. Oh, I'll go have a beer. Oh, did you notice the drive through beer place? Yes, <laughs> it's like... I did. Oh, my God. That's it's like, oh, the first... greatest generation right there. <laughs> yeah. Not drinking drive. I'll just drive up, grab a beer, and then I'll drive to the bowling alley. Oh, yeah. So good. He heads home and he's at his apartment just taking it easy. And he just knows for sure that. It's going to be her when the bell rings, and it is. So she comes over, and she lays the story on him. So this is where we get, again, a little bit more banter. And they say, yeah, he says, I'm crazy about you, baby. And that was, I think, the second baby that he used there, but he definitely... No, I I think it's maybe five or six. Five or six at this point, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. They kiss in this scene, too, don't they? Uh, They do kiss in this scene, yeah. You don't think this was a little staged, forced? It, it didn't feel... Well, I mean, this is, again, a sign of the times. And this kind of, I would say, forced romance in these kind of movies, you see them, you know, all the way through to the 60s. We're Star Trek fans. You would see that happen on the original series TV show as well. Other TV shows. I've seen other movies even in the 60s. It was very, very staged. It felt staged to me, but from another... For another reason it felt staged because it felt like played. she was staging it yeah 
Now, yes, you, you get the yes. dialogue and things just move at that certain pace because of this type of film. So, I, I mean, yeah, it didn't quite hit all the right notes for me. It didn't for me here. And I think the movie could have benefited a little bit more of her. I mean, I guess that's not the point of the movie. And that's the interesting thing. Is it this scene where he kind of agrees to help her? It is eventually, yeah. He's going over all of the ways why they shouldn't do it and how he recounts a couple of cases where there's one where a guy slipped on a kick of soap in his bathtub and was drowned. He had accident insurance, but the wife didn't get away with it because there was an autopsy. Yeah, yeah. I thought, well, what the fuck was with that? He slips in his own bathtub and she still gets charged? Well, I think the intimation was that they figured out that he didn't actually slip in the bathtub, that she killed him or she drowned him and said that he slipped. Or something. Oh, like that. that's what it meant. I thought it just he slipped and then just, you know, banged his head and then drowned in the bathtub or something like that. And then she still got, I mean, how do you prove that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, there was one where the wife was like, you know, his wife said he was cleaning a gun and his stomach got in the way. I mean, so she, <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds she, like when uh, that fucking ass ref, like I got my tooth busted. You remember that time? And he, and the ref said, oh, yeah, my face ran into his elbow. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, exactly. How your face remember he said that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. If I ever see that guy again, oh yeah, my fist ran into your face, I'm sorry. Yeah. Or your face ran into my fist, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, if you remember what he looks like. Oh, I do. He's on my list. I guess you better start getting to that list, dude. You're not getting any younger. <laughs> I've got time. The smart ones bide their time. Yeah. would be so <laughs> old by then. It's like, I'm like one of those old guys who forgot to pay for the batteries in Walmart. It's like, well, I was confused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember That's Uncle Leo? I was confused. You'd be trying to execute revenge schemes. You can't even buy batteries at the store. <laughs> <laughs> Smart way of doing it. That'll be friend. your, that'll, that'll be like your Munich. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway. We're still in the scene up in the, the apartment there. So, you know, he's again, he's not going for it, but she starts going in about how it's a shitty marriage and he beats her up when he gets drunk. You know, she's basically under house arrest, basically. And his insurance goes to his daughter and she's basically nothing like she married him for money. Now he doesn't have any. And that's it. So she says there was a time when he was drunk. They were in the garage and he just sat there, head on the steering wheel, motor still running. And he thought, well, maybe I could just. Don't turn off the car, close the garage door, and just leave him there. And boom. So she's sort of like, yeah, I, I wouldn't murder him, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to do it, so it's fine. And she says, I'm not going to do this. And that was great, because he says, I don't want you to hang, baby, and stop yep. thinking about it. But he can't stop thinking about it. And almost right after that, he says, like, okay, we're, I'm down. I'm into it. So they did it. He's He said he, said he was going to help her, because he knows. And it, it, I thought it was kind of interesting, because like, the, the thought process that goes through his mind there is... And he starts to think about it, and it's like all those times you see the guys trying to pull off the schemes, and you know you start to think, hey, what was the line here? He, he sort of, yeah, he's like, you know, you try to figure out all the tricks that they could pull on you. You're like the guy behind the roulette wheel watching the customers to make sure they don't crook the house, and so on, right? So it's like, it's always been in the back of your head. You know, you go to thinking how you could crook the house yourself and do it smart, because you've got the wheel right under your hands. So that starts to run through his mind i thought it was interesting she manipulated him uh into him basically thinking that it was his idea to do the whole thing and it was never hers so so she's absolved of not of the guilt because obviously she's going to be in on it but he thinks he's in the driver's seat when really she's the one who's definitely in the driver's seat yes and, and i agree i mean that's smart for her we find out at the end like she's even using him like this is not about love this is right. more about money right 
and her own power as a woman or a femme fatale or whatever you want to call it. Did you buy him all of a sudden just wanting to be a part of this plan? Well, instead of having like maybe, you know, some thoughts about it, because we don't really know a lot about this guy, right? Right. Walter at this point. And it's very fast. Okay, I just got the hots for you. Okay, but now, sure, you want to kill a guy? Sounds good, but now I'm trying to think how we can get away with it. It just feels, I don't know, there's something not right here. It's not about the action. It's just about the setup and the buildup. Yeah, I think it's, it was kind of a fast turn. And yeah, like, this is Anakin Skywalker, dark side fast. Yeah, exactly. Like, like whoa, whoa, you're evil. We got to take you in to, I'm going to murder death some children here. It's a little bit of a quick turn. And we already know that he's, done the deed because it opens with him saying he's the one who killed the guy so maybe that makes it a little easier for the audience to buy it maybe so so george lucas should have opened episode one with darth vader sitting back with his you know a couple of limbs cut off like anakin's burning on the ground and it's like a backstory he pulls out the dictaphone he goes so this is how it happened would have been pretty (laughs) rad though right if episode one had opened with him with the flash as a flashback as he's burning on Mustafar, it's yeah. like <laughs> maybe a li- maybe a little bit after that. Damn, maybe, damn now. Okay, this is when how he wakes it up on the table <laughs> and finds out that Padme's dead and all that, and that might have been a good spot. That would have absolved everything. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I'm just curious. It definitely <laughs> wouldn't have. <laughs> no, no, it's a fair comparison here. It's like a pretty quick turn of events. Well, yeah, Sith insurance salesman, pretty close on the spectrum, I'd say. You know, one guy has a lightsaber, the other guy has a. I don't know. But yeah, it's totally the, totally the same same thing. All right. Well, anyways, I just found it. I found it a little fast. Yeah. No, it was definitely fast for sure. So they concoct the whole plan. They need a witness for Mr. Dietrichson signing the insurance papers, but they need to pull a fast one on the insurance papers so that he signs not just to the car insurance papers, but also to this life insurance policy. that. They're- yeah. And I liked how he did this. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that played out well. I thought that was, I actually thought that was a pretty good way of executing that type of plan. And, you know, to have another witness there to vouch for the validity of what was going on here. So it was a good, it was a good idea, good setup. This was where I liked that they took a little bit of time to set up the plan as opposed to just sort of jumping into it. Because it could have just been easily handled with them putting papers in front of the guy. But isn't that what they kind of did? What I'm talking about, the interesting thing of the way it was shown is that when they were finally meeting with her husband, and this is the next scene, is that he had a copy. He was telling him that, oh, this is for my personal records. Yeah. Right? Here's one that you're signing, and then here's a similar piece of paper underneath. He's not going to read it because it's just a copy. Right. And he signed it. And I liked that aspect, especially for the times. I mean, I thought it was pretty clever. Yeah, actually, I like the whole setup where they set up the witness in the daughter at first and then sort of shepherd her out of the room at just the right moment. So how did he shepherd out of the room? Well, she was playing, she was playing Chinese checkers with Phyllis. Oh, that's right. And then she kind of gets her out of the room there. Fun fact, Chinese checkers does not come from China in case anybody was wondering if it was a racist name for a silly game. And it absolutely is. (laughs) (laughs) Keep pointing those little tidbits out, man. Hey, we're here for baby we dig deep we dig deep on these <laughs> yeah it was added just as a marketing thing to make it look exotic but it's a bunch of fucking marbles on a weird board it's not chinese at all anyway so they get the signature so step one is down they've got the insurance policy all signed along signed off on sorry for fifty thousand dollars with a double indemnity clause i thought there was gonna be a little wrinkle here so as he's leaving he kind of gets roped into driving the daughter into town to meet the boyfriend 
Mm-hmm. And I thought there was going to be something here where they would be witnesses to something. And obviously her boyfriend is a bit of a hothead, kind of a punk. Nino. Dick. Yeah. Yeah. Nino. Guy's a piece of work. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I didn't understand this character. And I want to ask this question later. So let's skip it. But I agree with you. The scene where he leaves the house with the papers and their plan, he's signed off on that double indemnity clause for the accident insurance. And now Walter gets in his car and the daughter's just sitting there. And yeah, he's getting a little nervous. I thought he'd be, maybe this movie would go all Weinstein or Kevin Spacey or something. (laughs) But I didn't know what to expect. And I agree with you. Maybe it could have been she would have found out something about stumbled across the papers or something along the line, but it just really didn't amount to anything except you get introduced to Nino. Yeah, that's right. And then even then, I want to ask the question later, so let's put this in the back of your head and we can talk about it later. I really don't understand the function of Nino in this movie because really he doesn't really amount to anything, in my opinion. He he doesn't. He only amounts... Well, we'll come back to it at the let's end. Let's come back to it at the yeah. end, yeah. I thought what was going to happen was he was going to recognize... Walter when he was impersonating Dietrichson on the train because he had seen him before so he would know. You mean Nino? Nino would have Nino, been on the yeah. train? That's what oh, I okay. that's what I thought would happen. Like okay. when like later when he's getting yeah. onto the train I'm like okay this is why we met Nino is because he's going to recognize him which didn't play out. So Yeah, and then, yeah, that's actually a good point and it's kind of funny you mentioned that because I was going to say as the movie starts progressing cuz now at this point these two obviously ha- cannot interact with each other publicly, so they start having their little powwows at the Quickie Mart. Right. Yeah. Right? Right Here. next to the squishy machine. Except no brown Apu. It's just some other no-name white no, they guy. They got a white Apu. They got a white Apu. Not a black Apu. Brown people haven't entered the country yet. No, they definitely have not. No, this is World War Two. <laughs> yeah. So, brown people? <laughs> Who the fuck are they? <laughs> so. Well, they're still eating snakes and bugs at Pancot Palace or wherever. And That's not racist. <laughs> no, not at all. Anyway, where was I going with? Yes, I was saying when they were meeting, consistently meeting there, Billy Wilder showed these patrons, like people who were shopping there or people who were the stalkers or working there. And I thought maybe this would have been ended up in some kind of trial. And then these people would have been witnesses. Yeah, I remember these two meeting. I thought that's where they were going with it. I'm mm-hmm. glad it didn't go down yeah. that way, but that's what I thought was happening. Yeah, did you, did. you recall? They were like really focusing on the other people shopping there. Yeah, they were making a big deal out of the whole market scene, the set of the market as being where they would meet. So, but yeah, because didn't she ask uh, when he's in there, doesn't some random customer ask him to grab a box Thing off, off the top shelf, shelf right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I kind of the same feeling as you, like all these witnesses are just starting to pile up and they haven't, you know, like before they've really even done anything mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't amount to much. So sort of odd, I guess. Well, one, I'm glad they didn't go down that route or Me route. Too, yeah. Like we're saying, here's all your witnesses. You see, remember seeing them in the market scenes and that's a trope that's been played out to death and it's terrible, terrible writing. Yeah. So glad they didn't go there. But yeah, I really don't really understand the, point of these scenes here and it's kind of odd that they would want to meet in the in the middle of the day well i think the reason why they wanted to meet in the middle of the day i mean as he says it's like it's a market so if anybody says they saw us there we could just say that whatever we were both out shopping during the day be told normal so they could explain away any chance encounter from somebody that would have recognized either one of them because once it's at night at somebody's house you see one person coming or going then it raises suspicion so that's why they chose, or why he says they chose the the scene, and that's all fine. But you know, eh, 
And I'm, I'm the same as you. I'm glad they didn't go down the route where there was going to be witnesses lining up for them because that would have just slowed things down, would have been boring. But it did seem like a much ado about nothing. So we, they start talking about the plan. She says that her husband broke his leg, uh, which they actually uh, end up running into uh, into their plan. So that ends up working well for them. Yeah, because originally he was going to take the car. Yeah. But now he has to take the train because he broke his leg. Right. And then it also makes it easy for a setup for him to have an accident. That's right. Yeah. And they can work the train into it. Now, I think they discussed, I'm just reading the lines here, and I didn't pick this up where he says, oh, no, they don't say it. uh, I don't know if they talked about how they were actually going to kill him. No, I don't think so. I just think that they would, I don't think they had a chat about how they're going to kill him. No, I don't think they did either. No, no, it just happened because, yeah, it was weird because like at the end when he's going to the train, he just gets dresses the same way because he has that voiceover explaining how he has to go home and then have the witness with the guy who's washing his car in the garage. Boy, that guy's fucking slow washing that car. Yeah. Holy fucking shit. (laughs) It's like. Four or five hours later, he's still doing it. It's like, F, you're not trying to screw me, are you? (laughs) He's putting that third coat of wax on that one there. That's how long it's taken. Well, he's black. I guess they require to do 10 coats per car, right? In 1940. Maybe he's he's getting paid by the hour. Why does he have to hurry? Not necessarily. I'm sure it's 10 coats just for nothing. Here's your penny. Take it home. I'm sure he wasn't getting paid very much. That's for sure. It wasn't even like an actual like unionized extra. They figured, hey. They saw a black guy on the set. They naturally figured all he was good for was washing a car. They worked it into the scene. Yeah. That's not what we feel about it. That's what a bunch of white guys making a movie in the 40s would have thought about it. Yes. Anyway. <clears throat> Less said about that, I guess, the better. Yeah, you're walking a fine line here. Temple of Doom, racist remarks, brown people, black people. This is coming from the guy who roll. has actually dropped the N-word on this show, not once, but twice. Uh, only once. <laughs> no, you did. You've done it two, two times. You've done it. Two I times. don't know. Once. <laughs> you were quoting. You were quoting. Both yeah, times, but it was but it was a it was a song lyric. It was a song lyric, but you also quoted a line in the movie in Network. There. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. But the, again, I'm quoting a line. No, no, I know you were quoting the line. Still balls in, <laughs> but still. <laughs> Where were we? We were at the death of the killing. Okay, the right. so there's killing. some stuff here and there where they talk a little bit more about the plan. It takes a little while to get to it, but yeah, we just let's just jump to the train, or not just the train. So she he hides in the back of the car, and signal is there's going to be three honks on the horn, and then he's going to come out from the back of the car and do what to him? I don't know. Obviously, he chokes him. But they didn't, sh- like, I was... Like, no, they didn't show yeah, it, but again, that's the 40s. They wouldn't show this, right? Not necessarily. Well, they didn't show people getting shot. Is that, I guess that's okay. You can use a gun, but, can you, but your bare hands, don't show that. Maybe this was rated G, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. So they off the guy. He gets puts on the fake cast. He's wearing the same suit as Dietrichson. He gets on the train, and everything's going according to plan. And this is sort of the first... And his plan, let's just state for the podcast, his plan was to dress like him, wrap a fucking bandage around his foot, not a cast, a bandage, Yeah. hobble onto the back of the train, jump off, and replace the guy, the body there where he would have landed, where he landed. Yeah, exactly. The train's going like four miles an hour. For starters, it's not that it's a bad plan, but at the same time, and I like the little wrinkle that there's a guy in the back of the car there or in the outside of the train at the back of the caboose or whatever that's called, the back car. I like that wrinkle, but I mean, you don't think that there would be a whole shitload of other witnesses for this to really work? 
and then you're banking on the train not going fast that he's probably not going to get seriously injured as he jumps off the train well it's dark no no but for his own safety walter's own safety (laughs) yeah i guess he figures like here's i guess where it partially falls apart because yeah he needs to know that he's not going to get injured jumping off the back of the train so all right he knows it's going to be slow enough that he'll be fine but to make that convincing enough of an accident that somebody could believe that the guy could get killed whilst falling off of the back of a train i mean not only that but if he chokes him so i think this is a little bit of the flaw of the movie so i made to believe just from the way the killing happened that he was because he was behind the guy and i think you could hear a bit of a struggle as they he choked him to death yeah whether with his hands or a wire or whatever so his neck is broken or he suffocated to death right yeah one of the two and then you would have those marks around his neck right so then he falls the body if he the real cause would have been falling off the train but then an autopsy would show that he was murdered and i'm pretty sure doctors would be able to figure out at that time how he would have died i mean they're not stupid we're only talking 1944 so i mean like you could easily tell if a guy's been choked to death or strangled to death or broke his neck from a fall so i mean this plan really doesn't make a lot of sense no it doesn't make a lot of sense unless they did indeed break his neck but doing that without well i don't know how they break the guy's neck in that small car there no no, it's a, I think it's a flaw of the movie. I, I didn't buy this at all. So it doesn't quite, yeah, it doesn't work. No, yeah, it doesn't confused, work. Yeah. But it's not the point of the movie, I No, guess. it's not the point of the movie. And the only part of the plan that I did think was neat is that it's a good alibi because people are like, yeah, I saw the guy on the train, blue suit, cast in his leg. Yeah, saw that guy. Must have fallen off. Obviously, it's the only thing that could have happened. And then she's there in the car to dump the body. Like, I thought that was a clever setup. If the death had been played out a little bit better, then, you know, then that a lot of that stuff could work, could have worked really well. Or if there was a clever way for Walter to have gotten off the train and just, you know, to make it look like he had fallen as opposed to basically just stepping well, what off. I think what it would have been made more sense is if they caused him to fall, say, down a flight of stairs. And then you arrange for the daughter not to be home or no one to be home. And she pushes him down the steps. His neck is broken. Maybe he's not dead yet. And then you have to do something else. I don't know. Maybe you have to bring him up, push him down again. <laughs> do it a few times. But I mean, like, yeah, I just didn't buy this. I would have at least bought that, even though you would have the question, oh, well, how do you know his neck would have broken the first time he fell down the stairs? I still would have bought that better than what they did with the car. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, they're trying to work the train in. I, I mean, yeah, I agree. It, it was too close quarters in that car to give him the injuries that he would have needed where you believe that he was caused by a fall off of a train. And this is where I thought that first scene in the credits would have come back full circle. And that was kind of foreshadowing. Mm. Is the guy, you remember in the credits, the guy was hobbling with the crutches and he was walking as the sun was rising. Yeah. And I thought maybe this was the foil in the plan is that they thought they got away with it and the guy fucking was still alive. (laughs) He wasn't even dead. (laughs) He still gets up and he's walking along the tracks. Yeah, that would have been fun. (laughs) One part I did like about the scene that I thought created some tension was when they get back in the car, they dump the body and the car won't start. Yeah. I thought that, that was, was kind of, but then it started. So whatever, it didn't amount to anything, but I thought that was kind of, that was fun. Everything seems to be going a okay. The plan sort of starts to unravel a little bit when the guy in the, on the observation deck who had seen him close up, never got a look at his face, but was sure that it wasn't the person described as Mr. Dietrichson too old and so forth. So things you can start to see just right straight up are unraveling the two aren't you know they're staying away from each other walter and phyllis 
so that there's no suspicion placed on them. She plays up that she never even knew about the insurance policy. And everything sort of seems to be going okay. They seem to buy it. They want to try to pin it as a suicide. And even, and this is where Keys comes to the rescue. He's like, well, what are the chances a guy is going to try to commit suicide like this? Like, the odds just don't. Yeah, and I, and I like that scene where yeah. he's Keys is saying, you know, suicide by gun or drowning or jumping off a bridge or whatever. So he lists all these different ways of committing suicide, but not once have I heard of someone jumping off the back of a train. Yeah. yeah. So I, thought that I guess it's the book. Yeah, that was a nice scene. I, I, I like it. It shows how Keys is really thinking it through. He's a thinker's man. He's looking at all the details. I like that scene where he's arguing with that, I guess, the manager, the head manager, yeah. who's claiming it should be suicide. And he's saying, no, you don't have a, you don't have a prayer. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Pay her out and let's go. But it's still gnawing away at him. And this was a, a good scene, I thought, here where Phyllis comes to see him. And just as soon as she hangs up the phone, he's like, yeah, come on up. Keys shows up at... I love this scene. Yeah. I love this scene. This, this is, is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I'd say this is the best scene in the movie. I thought it played really well. It was... There was the tension. And yeah, this worked. This worked really, really well. It's a good scene. But this tension is like soap opera tension. I mean, you know, she's just behind the door. And I like how it played out because she kind of pushes the door to let Walter know that oh, she's yeah. on the outside. And yeah. that, you get that little detail, I like that a lot. Yeah, that was good. And that he's kind of keeping the door, moving it in and out to kind of protect her view from Keys seeing her in the hallway. But what was it that Keys came in and said? That was like, what was his doubt again? Now I can't recall. Okay, so it was because of his leg. So oh, like, then he didn't make a broken leg. Why didn't he make a claim? On if he knew that, that he had the insurance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, which I thought was... I mean, it's was, true, but if the guy wants to commit suit, if the guy... Well, no, see, now I he's guess, thinking, like, it's murder. He's like, it just didn't yeah. make sense that he took out life insurance. I mean, you're right, if he wanted to commit suicide, but it, but he doesn't believe he committed suicide. He thought it was an accident, mm-hmm. right? So, if it was an accident, like, why didn't he file claim before that? So, I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like that scene. I thought that scene was well acted. I guess that has kind of the most tension in the movie. But I mean, I want to be honest with you. That's not saying much. There is some tension here. But, you know, you mentioned the scene where the car doesn't start and they got the body. They laid it out in the tracks and they got to move away from the body quickly before someone identifies the body. And the car's not starting. I mean, that scene had a bit of tension, but it was went away in, in two seconds when the car started. Uh, I would have liked if they kind of expanded that, not sitting there for five minutes turning the key or trying opening the hood and fixing, trying to fix it. But even if that would have been the case, if they open the hood and they start to fix it, but they start to panic, you know? Yeah. And they start getting on each other's nerves or they start drawing attention from some other people because maybe he's panicking or she's panicking. I think there could have been something else there. And then adds to some of this. Uh, yeah, there's just I, no tension in this yeah, movie. I guess... I don't like it when they do some of that stuff, though. I mean, it also doesn't have much relevance to the story. So you have to keep things moving along a little bit. If nobody is going to see them, I guess the question is, like, at what point do you sort of... I understand, but but the length of this movie is, like, less than an hour and a half. This is not even 90 minutes long. Well, we're talking in the 40s, though. I mean, it was a different time for runtimes. Yeah, that's true. I'm not going to deny that that might be the case. I'm just saying I'm not feeling tension here. Well, no, it's not really that type. It's not really a a thriller in that sense where there's lots of of tension. It's not a Hitchcockian type of thriller. It's certainly, I don't know. I mean, they're not really going for that. It's not that type of movie. I guess I have the question for you then, Jeff. What are they going for? I think what they're going for, and this is probably true of a lot of films in the genre at the time, is 
here's a story about two people who do bad things and what happens to and what happens like when you a lot of times it's these people get in there it's the story about these people getting there come up in one way or another and so that tends to be what it's about and you think it seems like they're going to get away with the scheme for so much of it and then when things start to unravel you know like that that's what kind of what happens in these types of movies so like to think that's what they're going for now whether that's entertaining whether that works or not i guess we can kind of come back around to at at the end but i think that's sort of normal for the genre from the that's fair so that's um, fair so let's jump ahead a little bit here he's leaves the apartment doesn't see phyllis it's all good we come back to walter's office he gets a visit from the daughter lola and she thinks that phyllis murdered her father Mm -hmm. and this is where we find out that her mother was sick with pneumonia the nurse was phyllis herself Mm -hmm. and everything should have been fine but then the mother dies Mm -hmm. and yeah and it's obviously later they get married so this is when this is when walter kind of gets he oh shit yeah oh shit Mm -hmm. yeah we've got a black widow on our hands here macgyver macgyver (laughs) macgyver (laughs) and selma has one hour to live (laughs) come again (laughs) that was a deep cut dude nice one and this is a good revelation for the audience as well because you've either buying her routine up to this point or you haven't been and i had sort of been at this point so i'm like oh shit like yeah she just played you dude and uh, now you are in trouble so still trying to play it off but this is where she also drops a bomb that her mother's been seeing the daughter's boyfriend whom we met and this is where i didn't understand this stuff so explain it to me okay I don't understand how Nino fits into this Phyllis stuff. What the fuck is happening? They're just sleeping together? Yeah. <laughs> I love how simply that's it. They're yeah. just sleeping together. That's it. Well, so they're, I mean, she's using, like, she sees Nino. She's got access. So she knows she's going to pull off this scheme. But there's two things. So one, she wants, I presume, all of the money, the whole hundred grand. And two, she wants to get away with it, which means that she has to eliminate any witnesses to the scheme, which would be walter so she seduces nino in order to have somebody who can off walter you're guessing i don't see any of that played out like you're assuming that's her plan well he assumes that's what his assumption of the plan is that's what walter thinks has happened because he tells us so okay i I don't i can't recall the scene or the voiceover part that he mentions that that might have just been something i missed i mean it's not like terribly i was starting to I was sort of ready for this movie to be over at this point, but that's what he assumed is that she brought him in him and that's why he ends up going to the house first in order to sort of preempt it because now he sees that he can kind of flip the tables and use him, Nino, to, you know, he can sort of frame, he can kill Phyllis and frame Nino for that murder. So that's okay. right. So that's sort of the plan. So if we want to kind of keep jumping ahead here, they they kind of have a bit of a, an argument. So he goes over to the house. She's hiding. She hides the gun in the chair, and they sort of have their final scene together. And he confronts her about it. Let's see if I can find the line here. Like hail to the king, baby. <laughs> there's a lot of babies in this screenplay. That's for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of babies. Here's a weird one. So he starts hanging out with Lola. Yeah, that's it. That's right. He does that at the end of the movie for a tiny bit. And I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why either. Because he says, as he in his voiceover, he says, it sounds crazy, but it was only with her that I could relax and like, oh, a little. Yeah, again, I was start- as I said, I, I started to get a little worried. <laughs> 
I didn't think it was going down that route, but just with all the stuff that's going on in Hollywood these days, it's just accusations are, are coming out now. It's just pretty funny. Yeah. Not funny, but it well, makes you right, think yeah. it's like this is what the other writers trying to hint at maybe something they want. Another older man with a younger woman. Obviously, it didn't go down that route. You know, my, my eyebrow was starting to go. I, th- hmm. I think they kind of needed, as I'm reading through here, so I remember now. So I think they just needed a reason for them to hang out so that she could kind of confide in him. Because she about starts Nino? to cry about Nino. And he's like, well, what? So she says that she thinks that they killed her father together. And she, oh, she says she's following okay. around and stuff. So that's probably what it is. That she she opens up about it. And he was like he was supposed to pick her up the night of the murder, but never showed up. So that's kind of when things jump into his mind. Because he's like, well, yep. wait a second. Like, what was she... What was he doing at the house that he couldn't figure that yeah, and, out, right? And that's why he thinks he's going to get offed as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I believe we were at the scene now where... I can't recall if he's decided to kill her as well at this point. Yeah, I'm trying to find it. I'm tr- trying to remember because I think he just wanted to go to her house to confront her. But I can't recall if his intention was to kill her as well. But she had hidden the revolver okay, so here's under what, her chair. Here's what happened. So he's looking... Okay, so he goes to the insurance to the office to look at the files. So they have Neff under they have Walter under surveillance and they haven't found anything for him. No connection's been established between Walter and Phyllis. They're like, okay, well that's so he's kind of free from there. But in the file it says that the connection is between some other guy and Phyllis. And you know, there were several nights where Nino has gone to see her at her house. Uh, so they listen to me. So this is when he's, yeah, that's what happened. So he read, he's reading the file of surveillance. So they think that Nino's the accomplice, not Walter. That's what Keyes said to him. That's right. Yeah. Or that's in Keyes' file. So that's what he figures out. So then he makes the date or whatever to go over to see her. And then he says, he says, what I intended to do, he said, I saw a way to get clear of the whole mess I was in and of Phyllis too at the same time. But I didn't know she had plans of her own. So she was planning, because she had the gun. So she was planning to kill him. Mm-hmm. He had his plans, but he didn't know that she had the plan. So he gets there. But what was his plan? I know what her plan was, because she has the gun underneath the couch cushion. Okay, so here it is. So he tells her, he's, here's the plan. A friend of mine's got a funny theory. He says when two people commit a murder, it's sort of like they're riding in a trolley car together, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, maybe he's got something there. So sorry. And just to stop you, that was a great scene between him and Keys from earlier, because that's Keys mentioning that to him. If it was right, a, a somebody who he mentions when he was there having their talk back and forth before about the case, when Key is expecting its murder, he's saying, well, if it's one person, they'll have a greater chance of getting away with it. But if it's two, it's it messy. And he has that little speech he gives and and i really like that scene because then they have to go all the way through they're they're stuck together no matter what yeah, yeah. And that's a really cool concept for sure and it does end up sort of bearing out in the end even though he thinks he can get off the trolley early and this is where he confronts her and says it's been you and that zucchetti guy all along hasn't it she denies it and he's like well it doesn't matter if it's true or not the point is, is that keys believes that nino's the one he's been looking for and like they'll have him in the gas chamber before they even, before he even knows it happens. So that's going to be it, right? So it's and that's what she things. shoots him. Yeah, that's right. So his intention was just to tell her that <laughs> Nino is the suspect. You and Nino are now going to be implicated. Yeah. And I, I'm going to now, I'm telling you this, and now I'm going to just take off. Yeah, so let's see here. That's a little uh, weird. No, I think that's how it played out. I think that is this, how it played out. Yeah, no, no, that's just, how it played out. He had no other intention. I never got the 
hint that his intention was there to kill her. He was going there to tell her, this is why, you know, I'm free and clear of you. Because I think at this point he realizes they're not getting away with anything. They're not getting the money. They're not going to get away with the murder. It's going to be known. But he will not be implicated. It'll be her and Nino. Yeah. And he went and go. To- he went and told her that, which was a very stupid thing to do. It was a very stupid thing. To- he should have just stayed home. Yeah, he should have just stayed home. He was off the hook. He was off the hook. Yeah, he was off the hook. Yeah. So why tell her? This is yeah. for drama because it's a movie. That's right. It, it is for the drama. That is true. Well, it's also because they have to get a find a way for them both to pay for it. So, I mean, she's going down for it, but we need, to, if he didn't go, if he hadn't gone there, he wouldn't have been shot. and He would have been, you know, able to get away with it. But you're right. It was you know what, simple. you know what had been more interesting? I'll be honest with you, because they built up keys to be this kind of like Sherlock Holmes of the insurance industry. So I thought if they found a better way that he thought he could get away with it, even if he told her that and she didn't shoot him and she's arrested. I thought it would have been interesting if he had sl- still slipped up somehow and Keys figured him out. That would like, be- say, even if he got shot and then he still ran away, like he didn't kill her, like he wrestled the gun away from her and he just he didn't have to kill her or whatever. But I don't know. Yeah, I just this is another idea that I thought would have been a little bit more interesting because then it would have given some meat and made some sense and closed that loop that you're building up Keys to be this really smart guy. Nothing can get past him and then nothing did. Here, Keyes was still fooled, essentially. Yeah, Keyes was fooled as... It was only the blood when he went back to the office and the janitor called him. That's why Keyes showed up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he could have just not gone to the office Yeah, as well. Yeah, another... He would have got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. But he he didn't get away with it, so he wrestled the gun away after getting shot, shoots her, twice kills her, and that's it. Well, there's that's not it. He waits outside to tell Nino. So he's saving Nino. That's right. He saves... Why? Why? Why is he saving Nino? Well, I guess he figured, well, I fucked everything up. May as well not rope anybody else. But how does he know that Nino and her probably wouldn't have offed him? How does he know that Nino may not have been involved? He's making an assumption. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a little messy. It's a little... It's a little something. messy. Yeah, it's messy. I don't get it. I don't. I didn't get that scene. You know, okay, kid, because he's waiting outside the bushes, right? No, don't go in there. Yeah. Get out of here. I don't know. I think he assumed that he was going to be going to see her. I mean, I think the gun might have tipped him off. Like, she was... Re- well, I don't know. Now I'm making assumptions. But she was ready for him. He knew that she had a plan. Like, afterwards, because he said, like, I didn't realize she had a plan of her own. So the plan was that she was going to, you know, blast him. And Nino was going to come after her to whatever. I don't know, right? Make up a story, dispose of the body. And and he's just like, yeah, don't go in there. I don't know. That's a good question. No, I don't think we're missing anything. I was really perplexed with why he's trying to save Nino, and I would have just left it. It was a nothing scene. It just makes me ask more questions. Yeah. Well, and it so. doesn't really wrap anything up either. Like, no. It doesn't help tie any other loose threads. And that's where it comes back to with all this stuff. I get the reason why Nino is there now is for him to second guess and realize that, oh, shit, she's a femme fatale and he's gonna, his life is potentially in danger now, right? Right, yeah. That's why he confronts her. But it's a little messy for me. And I didn't like it. Yeah, it's a bit of a messy ending there. So comes back around where he hobbles back to the office, jumps onto the dictaphone, tells the story. He's as wise to the whole thing. And Walter tries to escape, but he's too weak. And lights a cigarette. And that is it. That is the movie. That is Double Indemnity. So that's that. So, yeah. Life of the insurance agent. I never knew. It's like, you know. (laughs) It's all... 
That's all fun for towels. Like I thought, is this what happens at London Life every day? I mean, holy shit, I'm in the wrong industry. <laughs> you know, my life is boring compared to what's fewer, potentially going on over there. Yeah, fewer dictaphones probably nowadays, but it's all femme fatales and throwing dead guys off trains for sure. Uh, lots of intrigue in that business, I have no doubt about it. Yeah. That's why your premiums are so fucking high. Yeah, they spend all their time fucking investigating and all this stuff. It's yeah, fun. Right. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Playing golf, going for beer, yeah, going for beer in the afternoon, drive through beers, bowling, staging murders, talking, talking, more talking. Yeah, it's a big job. It's clearly a big job. Like, it's not a nine to five. That's for (laughs) sure. No. No, it's, these guys are like detectives. These guys are, yeah, interesting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, not only are they the detectives, but they're the perpetrators of the crime. They are criminals, those insurance yeah, agents. They got both ends of that business just wrapped right up. They got the monopoly. Got us where they want them, Jim. Yeah, that's right, yeah. You're, you're signing that insurance policy. You are signing up for the Kobayashi Maru. There's nothing <laughs> you can do about it. <laughs> yes. So That's the film there. So why don't we kind of jump into some of our final thoughts on it. From what you know of the genre, the movies that you have seen that are in the film noir, whether they were made back in the 30s and 40s or more modern takes on it, do you think that this works as a piece of noir fiction or not? That's hard for me to say. Like Movies in, in genres evolve. You can look film noir, action movies are not the same as they used to be. Superhero movies are completely different than the way they used to be in a sense, too. That's another thing that's kind of popular in, in modern cinema. To me, this feels right at home for the time for film noir. When I think of film noir, I'll think of something like this. Yeah. But more modern film noir in the last, say, 20 years, in my opinion, while it has some of these tropes and staging and, you know, how, like, characters can get into trouble and it's a little bit of uh, not a thriller but a bit of a mystery or an investigation. And it's about how people can get intertwined into a problem and then they got to get out of it or they get their comeuppance. I mean, that's kind of what film noir is nowadays. Yeah. So they share those common traits, but modern film noir has a better grasp of developing a little bit more of an arc through the film, a little bit more attention. It's a little bit more excitement and twists, not for the sake of having twists, but I like it when there's a bit more thought process for the MacGuffin or how they slip up, you know, those little details mm-hmm. that I find in better film noir movies. I find this film, this particular movie is lacking a lot of those details. It's hard for me to say back in this time, in the early, you know, ones of the 50s, like around this time, I haven't seen enough film noir to say how better it is compared to other movies during that time it's very difficult for me to judge that right i just don't have maybe you may know better than i will since you are more of a fan of the genre so i guess that's a question maybe you should answer i mean there's a couple of interesting pieces in that context in that often in these movies i mean it always takes place in los angeles often it's a real scheme that's sort of underneath whether it's a murder or it's a straight up real estate scheme or something going on in hollywood so that we get an insurance scheme, which is a bit of a different take, and there's no... Okay, so there is an investigative angle to it, but not from the protagonist. They're the ones trying to outwit the investigators, which is also a bit of a different look at the genre. So I thought those pieces were consistent, but a different take on it, which I thought was different. I thought that was good, but, well, I mean, if we can kind of roll into our final thoughts here. You know, I don't know that it played quite so well. I mean, yeah, I think I could have used a little bit more suspense and tension and the wrap-up was a little bit messy so usually these movies tend to have a bit of a a tighter resolution from that perspective so 
How about we go into final thoughts here? Harry, would you recommend this? Is it a rare antiquity? And any uh, final wrap-up thoughts you want to get out there? Well, I mean, I did enjoy parts of this movie. I like the acting for the most part. You know, the dialogue with the babies and all that stuff I found very amusing. But it kind of wore thin as the movie progressed. But it's just a sign of the times. As I mentioned in the synopsis, in what Phyllis says and Walter said to her, it's very straight and narrow all the way through a, th- a thin line straight and narrow and that's kind of how i felt this movie was you know it, it sums up its parts really well with that sentence it's just very straight and narrow you know if you want to see a very simple story move from a to z with not a lot of points in between you might get like a f or i mean maybe a g or an h in there but that's about it you know there's not much to see here and i think that's the downfall of the movie i agree with you it should have been have a lot more suspense. I think the wrap-up should have been something a bit more intriguing and interesting. I kind of wish that they played up keys a bit more into kind of figuring out the details and the unraveling of the whodunit and figuring it out, even though the protagonists here are the ones who are the perpetrators of the crime. You know, there's a message about greed in here because he's talking about it's got to be the train. It's got to be the train, the double indemnity aspect of the insurance fraud. But to me, that's just the concept of a movie on a very high level. Like they're not really talking about greed. There's no underlying theme there. It's just like, oh, we're going to just do It's got to be the train because the movie's called double indemnity to be clever. And that, in my opinion, is the only difference of this movie trying to separate itself out from the other noir movies that I've seen or what I would assume are around during that time is just in the title alone, Double Indemnity, and there's not much else there. Unfortunately, it was single in all of its underlying markings of the movie. There was nothing double. It was all single all the way through. That's kind of what I think. Yeah. So I I guess if you're asking me if I would recommend it, you know, I guess, Jeff, I guess if you think that this was a nice little twist and that the, the protagonist here main protagonists are the perpetrators of the crime and this is one of the earlier markings of that in the genre then i would say for film noir buffs that there could be a recommend here but i personally don't recommend it i didn't enjoy enough of the movie i enjoyed watching it it was it's not a terrible movie at all it's just there's not enough meat there in the movie to say someone needs to go see this it's definitely not a rare antiquity i think that's that's pretty much it for me yeah So maybe the last piece of trivia here, which I thought was interesting. So in 1998, the American Film Institute, I don't know if you remember this, they released a list of like was called 100 Years, 100 Films. So sort of list of the best American films uh, of all time of the the past 100 years. This placed at, I know there's a lot of problems with that list. This was number 38 on their original list. Holy shit. Yeah. They did a tenth, holy shit. Yeah, they did a tenth anniversary list in two thousand and seven, where they placed at twenty nine on the list. It's hard for me to argue. I mean, like we are not like you know film student, you know, right? I'm not here to bash someone's list or AFI's list, even though I disagree with most of what they say and disagree with most of the lists that are out there. When there's lists out there that say Han Solo is the best Star Wars character of all time, they can go fuck themselves. He's a nothing character. How could he be the best Star Wars character? I don't know that I've ever seen that list. Any, I know anyways. you've got a big beef with it, but I don't... Anyway. No, no, it keeps popping up over and over. Well, I mean, let's look at AFI. I think it's AFI's top heroes. Okay, this is actually a good one. This is AFI's top heroes. I remember when I was dating my wife at the time, and I went over to her house to watch this. This was televised. 
and they started from a hundred wow, all the right. way up. I remember, yeah, yeah. They, they were going a hundred all the way up, and I was anticipating Luke Skywalker. He was going to be, you know, somewhere in the top twenty. Gets to the top ten. Okay, top five. He's still not there. Han Solo gets number two, and I start going, no way, fucking hell, because I know he's not getting number one. The AFI won't put a Star Wars character at number one. He was not even on the fucking list. Who was number one? I can't recall. It was top heroes and villains, so they were on the same list. I totally remember that now that you've mentioned it. Was but but Luke Skywalker yeah. himself was not... I mean, Princess Leia was on there. Darth Vader's on there. Han Solo's on there. But Luke Skywalker is not on there. And actually, they did another... It wasn't AFI. There was another prominent film list as well. This is not to get sidetracked, because this is just a big beef I have. This is my point, is that Luke Skywalker is not respected as in the industry at all. It's unless you're a die-hard Star Wars fan, nobody gives a fuck about Luke. And I'm telling you, that's the way it is. But anyways, the point being is I, I don't want to also, when it comes to these historic films, let's go back on track. As I mentioned before, I don't really know how this sits at the time, maybe this was a landmark change for the film noir genre in which we talked about the protagonists are now the perpetrators. And maybe this is why it's, you know, reviewed so fondly over time. My personal belief is that everyone, all these people are tainted with their attachments, just like we are, too, with movies that we like, like, say, Star Wars, for example, that we keep bringing up. This probably is just the love of Billy Wilder that's impacting these lists, in my opinion. Unless there's something really special about this movie with respect to the genre, I don't see how it's on this list at all. I mean, I have a problem with this list and most lists that are out there and they're... I guess the only thing that these lists are good for, for making some people mad so that we can have a conversation about it. And I guess that's okay. I thought it was uh, interesting that it ranked so... I'm surprised that it made the cut uh, of a list like this in the sense that I didn't see a whole lot that was truly special here myself. So that's why I kind of brought it up now. I didn't know yeah, I was going to pick away that's an, a little, an old That's stab. shocking. It is. I thought it was shocking. I think that it's it may be regarded as sort of the film that's set the standard for the films in the genre, but I can't personally vouch for that, having not seen everything in the genre. No, you know, I'm a fan of the genre. I do enjoy these types of films. But, you know, my final thoughts are the resolution is a bit messy. The lack of suspense and some of the dialogue just being a bit overwritten, a little too zippy with the banter. I think I kind of feel the same as you. I, I enjoyed watching it perfectly well enough. If you're a noir fan and you're a movie buff and you like the history of films and seeing where the DNA comes from, then sure, fine. This is a movie to go and watch. I don't know that I could recommend it. As a rare antiquity, I, I don't think there's enough that's special or unique here. You recommend it, but it's not a rare antiquity. It's kind of a soft recommend to people of who enjoy the genre, but I don't think it's a rare antiquity. Yeah, so those are my final thoughts. That is Double Indemnity. I think we've done this enough here. I want to make sure that you don't bleed to death from the wound we just opened up. No, I'm going to have to go punch a few more holes in my walls in my house. You can just put up some Luke Skywalker posters over those holes and nobody will <laughs> yeah. ever, ever know the difference. So... <laughs> Yeah, all right. Well, I think that wraps it up this time, Harry. So why don't you dazzle us with your with what's next? Yeah, next time we are going to go back and review the first half of season one of Star Trek Discovery. I believe the last episode before its break just aired the other week. So we will sit back and see how the first half has progressed and what our thoughts are. Should be fun. Delve back into Star Trek. Yeah, that'll be fun. Get some more Trek on the show. That'll be great. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. All right, man. Well, sounds good. Until next time, then. 